what's really exciting about this technology is that it's kind of a programmable way of interacting with life. In this case, the code of life, DNA and RNA. And um, what's powerful about that is if you can programmatically and reproducibly and reliably uh, send this CRISPR system to any location in a genome, whether that's something you want to change or something you want to detect or otherwise, um, that's a very powerful concept. So on the editing side, you can imagine using this to cure genetic disease. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. This is the stuff of science fiction in real life. Our guest today is Trevor Martin, the co-founder of Mammoth Biosciences. There, they develop the CRISPR platforms and technologies that allow scientists to detect and modify DNA and RNA. He hopes the technology they're creating will cure the problems of the next generation, like genetic diseases. Trevor has been featured on Forbes 30 Under 30 and Fortune 40 Under 40, and his work has been featured in 538 and The Atlantic. As a young CEO and scientist on the cutting edge, Trevor also has a lot of insight into leadership styles. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Trevor. Thanks for joining me this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so I'm so excited to have you uh, be on our podcast and the success that you've been accomplishing this to date. I think that's really impressive. But I thought before we start, uh, maybe we can share a little bit about your background and what takes you to decide to start this Mammoth Biosciences. Yeah, so well, I was originally from Georgia, although I don't have the accent. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, no Southern accent, too much NPR as a kid. But uh, after um, staying in Georgia for 18 years, I went to um, Princeton for undergrad. And actually, I didn't really think I would ever do anything in biology going into college. Um, I was more kind of excited about physics and math and computer science. Um, but there's a professor at Princeton who had started this uh, pretty unique program called Integrated Sciences. And it was a way of essentially tricking physicists and mathematicians into becoming biologists, uh, which at the time was a pretty novel idea. Now you have to stop physicists from having opinions on too many subjects. But <laughs> uh, at the time, it was this really... Uh, novel concept of, you know, really even for undergrads, not just graduate students, teaching them biology as this discipline that actually uh, can be thought of in very similar ways to physics, where there's like rules, and there's engineering and math and computer science. And I really fell in love with biology uh, and that type of uh, approach to biology in undergrad. Um, and then went directly um, from my undergrad uh, to graduate school uh, over at Stanford, where I did my PhD. And that was, so you completely abandoned the whole physics dream? Well, I like to think that I uh, took the similar mindset and ethos, but just applied it to different problems. Um, and I think in general, uh, that's also the type of rationale that got me interested in synthetic biology and CRISPR towards the end of my PhD. It's actually more on the computational biology side originally. Um and I think in my career, I've always looked at areas where the intersection of fields is happening. So I think that's where you can really have a huge impact. And 
that's where a lot of progress takes place. Um, whether that's the intersection of uh, kind of computer science and mathematics and biology, or that's the intersection of engineering and biology. Uh, and CRISPR is kind of the combination of all these things where it's like programming life, essentially, and programming biology. Um, and I uh, reached out to Jennifer Doudna and two graduate students in our lab, Janice Chen and Lucas Harrington, and we shared this vision of what um, the long-term potential of CRISPR really could be across therapeutics, and diagnostics, and beyond. And uh, So we founded uh, Mammoth Biosciences together. So I know before, we, I mean, I, I'm going to ask a lot of the basic question, um, but before we start, I think we mentioned about you apply what you, you're thinking about physics, apply it to something different. And um, I think as somebody who's really young, just thinking back, of course, this is way back when you're in high school, when you take biology class versus physics versus math, it seems not connected. Mm-hmm. And what do you see? Is that changing now? That Or maybe you can help explain to some people sure. who think about biology, what biology was. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting if it's changed now. I haven't been in high school for a while. But, uh, yeah, no, I think the hope is that maybe similar to how undergraduate education was changing, maybe high school education has changed as well. Um, to be clear, I had great teachers in high school, but I think it is really common to teach biology as kind of stamp collecting. Um, like, here's the parts of the plant, um, you know, memorization, things like that. Whereas often, even at the high school level, physics is often taught as problem solving. And, you know, these are rules and you can apply them to like understand the world. Um, and I don't think there has to necessarily be that divide between the two. I think both of them can be taught in each way. There's plenty of stuff to memorize in <laughs> physics and there's plenty of problem solving to be done in biology. Um, and I think that could be a really powerful um, way of unlocking more potential uh, in both of these fields and other fields as well, right? It's not just mm-hmm. these fields that probably suffer from this problem of siloing. So um, there is some tension there in terms of uh, to do the best interdisciplinary work, you do need a solid foundation of like, okay, these are the nuts and bolts of things that are from one field that you can apply to the other. Um, so you don't want to gloss over that and you want to build up like a really great knowledge of statistics and physics and mathematics so that you can apply those. But I don't think that has to be done separately necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I remember when I was in high school, I feel like when you do biology, you don't really do much math or physics or calculus. And I think that is changing as well. So what prompted you to start the company? Yeah. So, I mean, I did a PhD because I really enjoy research. And I don't think you should do a PhD unless that's true because it's a big chunk of your life and a lot of opportunity costs. But I think towards the end of my PhD, um, there are two things. So one is that, um, you know, publishing papers and getting citations is great, but um I think it's way more satisfying to see things actually translated all the way through to patients. It's just maybe a different kind of satisfaction and like reward to actually see something out in the world and helping people um, that it's hard to get from being a couple steps removed from that process. Um, and also, I think that, um, for example, in software, there's this trend of like, well, of course, the people that are kind of like in the trenches can be the ones that are like translating this all the way to product. But in biotech and uh, pharma, there's been a bit of a disconnect of like, okay, like, nice, you've done the research, all right, now time to hand it off to like the people that are going to do the commercialization. And that's definitely been rapidly changing over the, over the last like five years, but, you know, still remains a bit more of the dominant mode. 
And I think that that's not necessarily the best way to translate it, right? Especially with a technology like CRISPR that has so much potential across so many different areas, maybe taking a bit of an unusual approach and thinking a little bit outside the box um, can be incredibly useful. That being said, similar to looking at the intersection of fields, like you want to have the nuts and bolts, right? Like to break the rules, I do believe you need to know the rules, right? And that's where I think it's, you know, building out a team that has both people at the cutting edge of research and the inventors of the technology and people who have deep experience um, in commercializing and like kind of having that marriage is a uniquely powerful combination. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. So maybe before we dive in further, can you tell us what is mammoth bioscience, what the technology, and maybe also describe a little bit what is CRISPR and what's that impact that is going to solve a lot of the healthcare challenges that we have? Yeah, so at Mammoth, we're building what we call the next generation of uh, CRISPR-enabled products, and that's across therapeutics and diagnostics and beyond agriculture, biomanufacturing, et cetera. Um, And I think what is really exciting there is that we've been able to build up what's become the most diverse toolbox of CRISPR proteins on Earth, and that's by looking beyond Cas9 and these kind of uh, initial proteins that have done amazing um, progress in terms of getting to patients, uh, for example, um, but have their limitations, of course. Um, so some of the heroes of this uh, diverse toolbox we've built are things like Cas14 and Casfi. Uh, and beyond just being you know, super interesting from an academic perspective, because these are just total, totally novel families, um, they also enable new products and improved versions of existing products. So this whole field we've pioneered of CRISPR-based diagnostics that people didn't think was possible and this like, new way of really doing molecular testing. Um, these ultra small systems that are just a third or less the size of Cas9 that really can enable new permanent cures and in vivo therapies. Um, these are all different areas that I think Mammoth uniquely sits at both the cutting edge of research and also the cutting edge of bringing uh, therapies and diagnostics and beyond to patients. And that's uh, something where often you uh, kind of focus on one or the other. But at Mammoth, we're really about building a true platform, both in terms of the diverse toolbox going all the way to product um, and really doing that across the different areas this can be impactful. So maybe you can help us un- under- uh, explain a little bit about what is Cas9 and how is that different from the other? Yeah. So uh, CRISPR is a technology that one of our co-founders, Jennifer Doudna, won a Nobel Prize for uh, her pioneering work in, um, in the last few years, uh, I think in 2020. Uh, and basically... What's really exciting about this technology is that it's kind of a programmable way of interacting with life, in this case, the code of life, DNA and RNA. And um, what's powerful about that is if you can programmatically and reproducibly and reliably uh, send this CRISPR system to any location in a genome, whether that's something you want to change or something you want to detect or otherwise, um, that's a very powerful concept. So on the editing side, you can imagine using this to cure genetic disease, right? We've, let's say, used computational methods to say this part of the genome is responsible for a disease. You can actually program the CRISPR system with what's called a guide RNA um, and say, hey, you need to go to this location and uh, actually modify the DNA there so that the disease is uh, no longer present. Or maybe on the diagnostic side, you can program the CRISPR protein to only bind to a sequence that's unique to what you're trying to detect. So let's say that's COVID-19. So a sequence that's found in COVID-19, but not found in flu or the human genome. And then you can tell the CRISPR system to, hey, send out a signal flare uh, if you see that and inform uh, me that you've successfully found the target. And that's a new way of doing molecular diagnostics. 
Um, but I think the fundamental paradigm shift is this really kind of how do we interact with biology in a way that's similar to how we interact with computers. And so help me explain. So how is that the mammoth bioscience technology unlock that? Yeah, so uh, we go beyond Cas9. So we really are looking at these novel CRISPR systems. So for example, Cas9 doesn't have the properties that allow it to send out that signal flare for diagnostics, right? So we've enabled and pioneered this whole field of CRISPR-based uh, diagnostics by looking at these new properties of uh, proteins um, that enable that. And on the therapeutic side, uh, Cas9 is actually quite a big protein as far as proteins go. And uh, by having these ultra-small uh, systems that are a third or less the size of something like Cas9, it really opens new avenues for delivery, whether that's viral or non-viral. Um, and that's especially important when you're going in vivo. So when you're actually trying to edit things without taking them out of the body, which um, is critical for uh, the majority of diseases. Um, and uh, I think that's really enabling for the kind of the next generation of CRISPR-based therapies. So as a regular general public, what is the benefit that they can gain from the technology that you guys created? Yeah, no, it really allows us to do things like cure genetic disease, to um, diagnose diseases anytime in any way and, and anywhere in an accessible fashion. And beyond, like imagine, well, like global warming, for example, uh, we're doing our best, but uh, there may come a point where we need to actually modify, say, crops to make sure that they can survive in a different environment. That's something that can be done with CRISPR as well. Uh, manufacturing new things using biology, right? That means you need to um, somehow edit cells that are producing these. That can be done with CRISPR as well. So it's really transformative in a similar way to, you know, what happens when we can program a computer and create software? I mean, there's millions and millions of possible directions it can go. And it's really a matter of like, what are our priorities in terms of what are the first things we want to tackle? This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. I want to, uh, you to take us back to the genesis of Mammoth Bioscience. So you have a few co-founders along with you, and I'm just, maybe you can uh, tell us the story about how you team up with all your co-founder and decide, like, this is the adventures that we're going to do. Yeah, so um, originally reached out to, so I did my PhD at Stanford, actually, but um, for graduate students, there's not so much animosity between Stanford and Berkeley, I suppose. Uh, but uh, saw the papers um, that Jennifer's lab had been publishing um, and reached out to Jennifer excited about the potential of these technologies, and she introduced me to um, Janice and Lucas, who are in Jennifer's lab, and star graduate students there. And we all really hit it off around this vision that we had for what the next generation of CRISPR products could look like and how building out this uh, diverse toolbox of proteins beyond kind of the initial ones like Cas9 could really be enabling of these new transformative products for patients. 
And I think underlying all of this was also a vision of really building something that lasts and something that can benefit patients over the long term, right? And there's no necessarily right or wrong answer here. There's plenty of companies that have, you know, a great outcome by being bought by another company or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things we also aligned on is that we really wanted to uh, build Mammoth into like the next great biotech company and one that really has an impact um, beyond uh, just one product or even just two products and even just one product in a single area. And that's an ambitious vision and there's a lot of risks there, right? Like there can be a lot less risk just you know, mm-hmm. focusing on a single thing and moving on to the next one. But I think with the technologies that we've been able to develop at Mammoth, we pretty much have a social responsibility, I think, to maximize the benefit that that can have across multiple areas. Well, that's great. And so it's oftentimes, you know, now you're, you've raised a lot of money, you, you're valued at over a billion dollars, everything is great. But I'm sure there's a moment in time, oftentimes you, before you reach that big success, I'm still, still, you know, it's still in progress, actually, right? Yeah, um, a long ways to go. I, right. I think I, you know, how do you, how do you lead and how do you grow with the company? Like, you, you know, your experience, you were students, graduate student, and you start a company that this company is growing. And I think as the CEO, you need to grow along with the mm-hmm. company as well. And how do you keep up that growth? as personal growth, as a leader as well. Yeah, I got advice early on that there's kind of three things to focus on. Uh, The first one being the direction, right? Like you want to make sure you're headed in the right strategic direction, um, that you're focusing on the right things. Uh, The second one is making sure that you hire the best people. And I really take that to heart as hire people that are way smarter than me (laughs) um, and way more experienced than me and uh, just diverse in every sense of the word, um, because I think the more you just have insular thinking, especially if you're trying to build a big company, the less likely you are to actually do that. Um, and then finally, um, don't run out of money because it's hard to do the first two if you don't have to cash. <laughs> um, so you know, those are kind of the three things that I do try and focus on as like North Stars. Um, and I think there, especially the second one around the team is critical, right? Because you can read as many books as you want, you know, whatever. <laughs> And it's not necessarily hiring people that are experienced in like the traditional sense, but um, the real way to scale, in my opinion, is by hiring on people that you trust and then trusting them, <laughs> essentially. Right. Um, because that's the most rapid, because you're bringing on people with just an entire lifetime of lived experience that you'll never be able to replicate, no matter how many books you cram on the weekend. So I think that's really the key to me is if you're really trying to build something big and for the long term, you really need the right uh, team to do that. Right. So I think one thing that, you know, people, that's great. You have, you hire the right people, uh, you trust them and make sure you don't have, you have enough money so that you can make people feel secure. That That's, uh, but I think sometimes I, I told my kid today, anybody can be a leader during a good time. The true leader comes when, how you lead during the difficult time, the challenging time. And I, I don't know whether Mammoth, you have experienced moment that is tough that you have to lead, and how do you lead? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, there's many instances, like big and small, but I think the commonality across times that are challenging, ironically, is uh, communication and trust. I think that's like really key. I mean, you even see it, honestly, in current events and things like uh, Ukraine. I think a big part of what's been successful for even looking at someone like Zelensky in a very different situation, truly life and death, right? 
just massive amounts of communication and almost like vulnerability around, hey, this is like the situation and um, being open about what's going well and what's not going well. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think often people kind of know something's not going well, right? right? Like it's not that big a secret typically. Um, So the more that you kind of acknowledge both sides of the equation, um, but also giving true like hope, right? Like what's the path out of the challenging situation? And then the more you can acknowledge how challenging the situation really is and like what's going wrong, I think the more people can trust what could go right in the future, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's something I think about a lot as well is um, vulnerability as like a style of leadership, essentially, in terms of just open communication. And uh, that is for both good times and bad, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because you build up the trust during the good times that then right. is leveraged during the bad times. So. I think having like a more vulnerable style of leadership is something that's not super typical in biotech. I think there's movements in like tech that have really embraced that, but biotech is a little bit more um, maybe against that often. <laughs> uh, but I think that's a lesson that can be taken from the tech world and applied to build um, even more robust biotech companies. Yeah, no, I, th- I think like what you're saying, what I was just thinking about is also doing the difficult, the, the good time you build that trust, the difficult time. Uh, communication is important, but also instilling that hope that there is a path and nothing is guaranteed in life. But then if you communicate that path and everybody can buy into that path, I think you right. can keep people together. Going back to what you're saying, though, why is that less of that leadership in biotech versus tech? Is that different kind of um, people? Or it's just, just a style that... Um just is a little bit of like a new thing in general, or I don't know, maybe maybe it goes in cycles, but it's some style that hasn't been super prevalent over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, I would say, um, because that can often feel, well, vulnerable, right? That's the whole point, um, is that instead of trying to just constantly paint a rosy picture, like really acknowledging like what are the limitations and what are the things that are going well, um, and not trying to make people feel like nothing's going wrong any <laughs> part of the time. Um, I think that, yeah, it's just something that can be more difficult to do fundamentally. But I think it's also the balance, right? If you say every, that you're always vulnerable, but oh, then yeah, you don't, yeah. then everybody just like, well, you can't even take care of yourself. Maybe I should take care of myself. And then just everybody yeah, jumps ship. Appropriate <laughs> vulnerability is maybe the right word, right? Because, yeah, I mean, there's a huge, massive responsibility to like the team and the company and the technology mm-hmm. and all these things, right? Um, so it's not so simple as just like spilling your guts constantly <laughs> yeah. or whatever, right? Um, because yeah, you're right, exactly right. Like people need support and uh, it should be authentic support and like credible support, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what you earn, I think, through this process, but it's still support for sure. Mm-hmm. And so as the leader, uh, uh, um, other founders, that can, what they can learn from you as you grow the company because you hear stories that when the company grow, then the founder oftentimes can be replaced or they have not grown as fast as mm-hmm. the company is. Besides, is there other things that you need to know and to learn? Is there a tool that they can uh, hold on to or get? Well, I guess the stereotypical tool is the growth mindset or you know whatever it's currently called in business school. But um, I think in general, the more you are just like always assuming that you need to grow. And the more you're always like, well, like I better 
make sure to hire in people that like you know could replace me or like have more experience. Ironically, the less likely you are to kind of be outscaled by the company, because I think yeah, it really is that mindset of just openness and vulnerability and like you know being open to like oh these are the things that are going well and not. And I think the more you try and like ignore that or like say oh like actually everything's fine or like oh like I maybe won't hire that person because all they're so experienced. I think that's actually ironically the failure mode for um, not being able to scale the company appropriately. It's almost what you're saying is that the more insecure you are, the more likely that you will not grow. Yeah, absolutely. Because you won't embrace the growth as much um, or identify the areas. Yeah. So I think that's a key element of it. And one, I know we are short on time. And last uh, question, what are the three challenges or three mistakes that you learned in the beginning that everybody should go through as an entrepreneur? Three? Wow, okay. That's probably a million, but narrow it down to three. Um, no, we, we have only five minutes to right. talk about it. Um, yeah, maybe I'll interpret the question a little bit more broadly in terms of not just mistakes, but just lessons learned generally. Um, I think uh, one would be uh, on the hiring side, just really um, kind of making sure that you're interviewing both on the culture and on the technical expertise. Um, And this is something you just have to constantly check at every stage of the company. Um, but having someone that's like hyper technically competent, but is, you know, horrible at communication or like just, uh, isn't someone that people really want to collaborate with is a recipe for failure compared to someone that's maybe even like only mildly (laughs) technically competent. Like obviously you really hire for both, but, um, that's a common trap that I see a lot of startups fall into is, um, someone that's highly technically competent, but like, uh, finds it difficult to collaborate with the rest of the team. And that's like a classic dilemma for startups um, is um, kind of how much to value culture versus how much to value competence. And at the end of the day, you really have to truly embrace both um, and you can't just pick and choose on it. I think another one uh, would be around um, actually kind of a tactical one, but lab space is incredibly difficult (laughs) to find. Uh, especially in the Bay Area and probably places like Boston as well. Uh, and uh, especially for an early stage startup where like you're only using a little bit of space um, and there could be huge startup costs to like equipment and just like all the other things that need to surround that space to make it productive. Um, instead of trying to like build all that yourself, um, I think it, it, there's been a really great development in the ecosystem over the last five to 10 years where there's like these hot benches and there's like all these spaces that you can rent like by the desk. And those are really great, even as your company scales, um, to take advantage of. And then, um, finally, I think the third one, yeah, I would say the third one to me would be not underestimating yourself, right? Um, especially for people that are coming from like a PhD to founding a company or undergrad founding or whatever it is, right? Chances are you probably haven't founded a company before or run a business. Um, That's going to be the minority of people. Uh, And I think that 
you can often self-handicap and be like, oh, like, oh, this must be so hard and like, I can't do this, um, both in terms of the choice of founding the company, but even once you've founded it, just choosing how to do things and like uh, setting different parts of the company and hiring people. Um, and I think people really underestimate um, how much they really have to bring to that um, and how much they really uh, can develop that expertise and um, really don't need to feel like an imposter in that sense. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's great. I think I uh, hear a lot. I mean, I definitely feel that we tend to overestimate our challenges and underestimate our ability to overcome the challenges. And yet, we're still here standing. So, yeah. <laughs> so well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing. That was a really great insight and good luck and doing a lot of great things. And I think uh, we as a society can benefit. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.